Welcome to the Habits of Leadership podcast, brought to you by Cut Through Coaching, helping leaders and their teams to thrive, professionally and personally. Hello and welcome to episode 79 of the Habits of Leadership podcast. My name is Dan Hasler from Cut Through Coaching and joining me today is Mr. Tim Perkins. Perko, how are you, mate? Outstanding, Daniel. Really looking forward to our conversation today. Absolutely. Every once in a while, every once in a while, we stumble across a book which gets us going. (laughs) And um, Belonging by Owen Eastwood. We discovered this, what, probably halfway through last year, maybe towards the end of towards last end, year? I think you got very excited about it. I got very And excited. suddenly there was a, a copy arrived at my doorstep <laughs> going, okay, we're in. I, I've bought, I reckon I've bought about 20 copies and just sent yeah, them to yeah. all manner of different people saying, read this, read this, you've got to read this, you've got to read this. And, um, and we're delighted to say that we've got the author of Belonging, um, on the podcast today, Owen Eastwood. So Owen is a performance coach. We've had a we've had quite a swathe of performance coaches um, mm. on the podcast recently, um, and I would say that Owen's um, work is well. It's referenced by a lot of the other performance coaches we've had on. So Aaron Michael Walsh, Gervais. Michael Gervais, mm. they all cite Owen's work, and I think there's a real nice synergy between his work and stuff we've probably been doing when we've been talking about self-determination theory Mm. and the need for belonging. But my take on it was when I read the book was, Oh, there's a, there's a heck of a lot more to the concept of belonging than we've been thinking about and and we've been doing in our work. So Mm. as you say, yeah, but shared the book and I know that you've had a quite a profound, um, relationship with the book it's got you thinking and, and I know that you're probably going to talk to Owen about that at some point mm. uh, during today so let's just jump straight into it Owen thank you so much for joining us yeah, wonderful to be with you guys yeah we've been spending a lot of time um, reading your book thinking about your book and and I guess playing with the ideas and the concepts in that with with pretty much I'd say I'm right in saying this Perko pretty much everyone we're working with whether it's a an NRL team or a corporate world or, or in schools mm. and we're, we're just fascinated by um what's coming up as a result of the work that your book has has sort of prompted but what i wanted to do to kick this off for the for the benefit of listeners who haven't read belonging yet because they will but they haven't you know they've not read it yet i was wondering if you could just bring everyone into the picture just giving us the the premise of the book and one of the two or three key in very broad brushstrokes, but the key, um, you know, components or elements, concepts within that book, just to bring people into the picture, and then we'll dig into some of the, the the, the nuance or the challenges that we're seeing on a day to day, day to day basis doing our work. Well, on a professional basis, you know, I'm a performance coach, and my particular interest is in team culture and leadership. And, you know, as you know, I work with a real diversity of teams, probably half in the corporate space, half in the sports space. And my whole coaching philosophy is based really on my own personal identity. You know, and I think it's probably the same with everybody. It's very hard to work in a way that doesn't somehow reflect who you are. So the book Belonging really is a description of some of the adventures and stories and experiences I've had, but also obviously reveals my own coaching philosophy and where it comes from. And where it comes from really is a big part of my growing up was when I was five and my father passed away very suddenly 
he was an only child. He, he was half Maori, half English. Uh, and when he passed away, obviously all the grieving, every, you know, it's an experience everyone can relate to. But as I became a teenager, I got extremely frustrated by the fact that I didn't really feel I belonged to, to these tribes that had so much power to them, the English and the Maori, and felt completely disconnected from them. We, we didn't interact with them. As I said, my father was an only child and his mother lived a thousand miles to the north. So when I was 12 years old, this frustration, which actually, interestingly, my siblings didn't really have, they created their own little personal identity stories, which they were quite happy with. But for me, I wasn't. I felt quite lost and probably a bit frustrated. And so when I was 12, I wrote to the Maori tribe and I just said very simply, my name is Owen Eastwood. My father was Harry Eastwood. His mother, my grandmother's Rose Eastwood. I believe they're members of your tribe and therefore I probably am. But do you know who I am? And, and they wrote this absolutely beautiful letter back to me, which in essence said, Oh, and we know who you are and you belong here. And as part of that, they gave me a thousand years of my ancestors, just line by line of ancestors going back. And this is a culture that didn't have a written language until the missionaries arrived in the 1800s, all through oral history and memory and ritual. And they explained the idea as well, not only this genealogy, but they explained this idea of whakapapa, which is you know, a Polynesian idea that each of us are actually, whether you're talking about your family, whether you're talking about your nation, whether you're talking about your church, whether you're talking about your school or business or team, any community that you belong to, that you are one person in a line of people with their arms interlocked with each other that goes all the way back to our very first ancestors, our origin story, whenever that may be, whatever it is. But also this line of people arm and arm into the future at the very end of time. And what they explained to me was, that the sun first shone on those first ancestors and has just slowly moved down this line of people revealing everybody in turn. And, and from an v- emotional point of view, the power of that was what they were saying to me was the sun has moved off your father, but you're and him, your arms are interlocked and will be forever and that's unbreakable. So th- on that level, it was very, very, very significant for me to feel close to him and to feel that sense of loss diminished. But actually then, once I learned a bit more about it, they also started to explain that as a leader, you need to understand what whakapapa is because what when the sun shines on you as a leader, you need to be the guardian of the story that's come thus far. And very importantly, that is not a fairy tale. You need to own the good, the bad, the pain, the shame, the highlights, all of it. And then you need to, with the sun shining on you, be very clear, what is this moment asking of us? And it may well not be a replication or mimicking of what happened before. The conditions may be such where you've got to do something quite different, maybe transformative. So you've got to be honest about that. And then finally, whatever you do as a leader, you must create the conditions for those who come after you to thrive. Mm. You cannot make decisions and do things which might be good for you but we'll put people who follow you in a difficult position. So oh, so you can see from a coaching point of view, that becomes a very powerful frame, not only of being part of a team, but what we require from our leaders. And that's really what belonging is expressing and giving examples and stories of and trying to also add some insight and science as to why those ancestors' ideas were actually very, very smart. And so you take that concept and, and apply it in sporting teams, in, in corporate organisations and... I'm I'm curious to um, 
here, do you, do you feel it's easier to do that in one type of organisation than another? For example, a sporting team over a corporate organisation or you know, we, we do a lot of work in school. Do you, do you think certain types of organisations lend themselves better to just being even interested in that as a concept to start with? Not in my experience. I've worked with some corporates who have actually forgotten their story, but then once we start the excavation process, they get quite blown away by what is there. Um, So I've had plenty of examples of that. Also, sometimes I'll work with a startup. So they don't have an origin story that is back in time. It's right now. Now, that is exciting, both from a cultural point of view and um, a business point of view, obviously, because what you can do is have a real intent. How do we want to start this friggin' story? Like, what do we want to anchor ourselves around, like our identity? How are we going to do things? And then really, really live it. So what you're, know- what you're doing is you're knowing that, you know, in a generation or two, though, the people who follow you will absolutely look to how you set this up. You know, your purpose, your vision, your values, your rituals, all of these, I'll look to that and then they can be empowered and energised by it rather than, you know, let's just be busy and do a lot of random things and see how it sort of goes, you know, and then we'll sort the culture out down the line, which some people have that mindset. So I I don't need a lot, hundred, you know, the All Blacks mm. have an amazing heritage as do lots of organisations. That's fine. You don't need that. And in fact... I've been invited into teams where it's been a completely underwhelming heritage. Some poor decisions, some poor leadership, some nothing really hitting out of the park at all. But that's fine because this, when the sun's shining on you, you get to write the next chapter of the story. And that is what energizes people. Um, so whatever way you look at it, I, I just think it's, well, I've found so far that that idea of whakapapa is useful. It's so great to talk to you, Owen, because I... Um read your book over the Southern Hemisphere summer. I know you're in the Northern Hemisphere, but um, over the last few months, and and as Dan said at the beginning, it really has informed an enormous amount of our work over the last few months. When I, you know, I've I've got your book with me sort of all the time these days, physically with me, and, and I've been looking at the cover of Belonging and thinking, well, what's the opposite of belonging? And really thinking about disconnection perhaps being the opposite of belonging. And... You know, what does that mean for us in a world where so many people are thinking in an individualistic way and how do I get ahead and uh, it's about me um, and the creation of of a sense of belonging and why would people see that as important when to some extent it seems to go in the opposite direction of the individual? Well, I think my starting point would be there is a global mental health report that's produced annually um, from these neuroscientists based in the United States who I've become uh, friendly with. They reached out to me after they read Belonging. And they cover 188 countries. They, they interview 300,000 people. And what they've found is that the age group which has had the most deterioration in their mental health in the last few years has been 16 to 24-year-olds. And this is not just individualistic Western societies. This is across 188 countries. But when they've um, interviewed them and found out what what's really driving that, the main reason is young people are losing a sense of their social self. Now, when we grew up, you know, we were in the neighbourhood, weren't we? 
and then we when we kick around with the people down the road, you know, down the road in the park. Then we'd go to school. We were we'd go to a sports club and play. We might go to church on Sunday, and then our representative team maybe play, and we go and watch the team at the big park. And then we put the TV on, and we felt part of a nation. We'd watch the Olympics or whatever it was. There was multiple, in fact pretty much ubiquitous experience of feeling like you belonged and had an identity mm-hmm. shared with other people. And that is breaking down. So this is 40% of people between 16 and 24 reported that they were mentally traumatized at some part of the last 12 months. Okay, this is, a, this is for me, terrifying. And coming back to your question, they are experiencing the opposite of belonging. They're experiencing isolation, loneliness in a chronic way and yes as and using your word disconnected from others and what's replaced some of those sort of very tangible human you know group experiences is obviously a lot of it's now on social media which is a completely different beast has a lot of positives but also has a an artificiality to it and a transactional nature to it as my son who's 15 says to me is all that snapchat and instagram Groups are just soulless. That's how he sees it. So uh, to me, this is not like a performance issue. I think when I wrote belonging, I was thinking of belonging as a very underrated, undervalued part of human performance. But now I look at it much more as a very, very important well-being issue. So if we don't feel we belong to a group, we will suffer from chronic stress. And that is unhealthy. I don't don't know if you've experienced this based on how you engage with, with certain clients, but what happens in your experience when you walk in and and you know you spend time with people and you're exploring this and then there are some people who are, who are going well it's just this is just a job for me you know this, I'm just here to turn up do my thing all this the, you know they can't make that connection between you know the the importance of this versus I'm just here to do a job <laughs> you know like it, it, it's do you, do you buy it? Do you, do you actually buy that people don't want to belong or is it that they've just not spent enough time belonging, if that makes sense? Mm, yeah, I think there's slightly different things going on there. I don't, I've never, ever come across a human being saying they don't want to belong. Um, it's a fundamental human need. You know, As you know, it comes from our evolutionary story mm. and it's been now replicated into our biology. So when we go into an environment where we don't feel, have a sense of belonging, we feel like an outsider. Uh, we, we feel like people will reject us in an instance and we suffer from chronic stress. So, you know, I don't know anyone who's going around saying that I'd really like, I'd prefer to be in a chronic stress situation and my biology and hormones going crazy rather than actually feeling comfortable and safe and trusting. I've never ever come across that. Um, I don't, you know, although it might be associated with it, you know, belonging is, as you know, one chapter really of six chapters. There's multiple things that go into creating a really high-performing environment. And it's not if we create a sense of belonging, then we've we've done it. We've won the gold medal. Mm. It's just a, it's a foundational thing that we need to build from. So for me, it's very contextual. There are some environments we would really dial that up. Um, you know, in sports environments where it's sort of under hyper scrutiny and there's a lot of pressure on and we really need to feel as safe as we can, we do dial it up. In a normal workplace, you don't have to hype it up around belonging. I think you need to be a bit more intelligent and subtle about it. 
So I think there should be a, a, a story of us that people can attach a sense of belonging to. I think all I can't see any reason why any community or business wouldn't create a story to explain to people who they are, where they've come from, and what the organisation is trying to achieve. But I think it's much more in a workplace situation. It's just about being clever around the day-to-day signalling of belonging. So for me, the way you give feedback, whether you actually sit down with your people at the start of the year and have a conversation about, you know, if you, the best version of you, let's talk about what that would be like and let's work towards it. That, that sends very strong signals to people that, oh, okay, they're actually thinking about me as part of the future here. You know, how you induct people when they come in. Do you actually bother to sit them down and explain to them? Um, before you start your, you know, induction process, I'm just going to explain Beyond to you. This onboarding. Is, this, yeah. Correct. This is why we've brought you here. Uh, we had some amazing candidates, but I just want you to understand this is why we selected you and this is why you belong here and this is how we believe you can help us. Um, if you have to give feedback to somebody rather than saying, okay, let's have a conversation, I'm not happy about what you just did, this is not good enough, etc. you can be a bit more informed. I've used in this past people like Gareth Southgate who would explain, um, let's have a chat about how you're performing at the moment. First of all, I just want to remind you, this is why you're here. This is why you belong here. This is why we brought you in here. This is what we love about you, love about what you can bring to this team. This is how you make us better. And then reference, hey, you know, we had a conversation, didn't we, about what the best version of you could could evolve and become. And, um, you know, there'll be a gap between where we're at right now and that, and just talk to me about it. You do that, you can literally hormonally profile someone the difference between setting up a conversation and giving feedback in that way versus the sort of direct confrontational edgy uh, statement. So all of those things in a normal work environment, whether people just want to be there for a year, two years or two weeks, you can still be intelligent about those things and ultimately get them in a good, energetic, positive hormonal state to work. So belonging isn't about let's make promises to each other, we're going to work together for 20 years or you're going to be in all black for 10 years. or It's not that at all. The sun's just shining on us right now, so we, we need to be mindful about where we're at. And that runs counter to, I think, a phrase I've heard you talk about, you know, lazy leadership. Yeah. I think Aaron Walsh actually shared that with mm-hmm. us on a, on a podcast. He, he spoke about you speak, you know, where yeah. leaders rely on, as you say, the, the other response of fear and get the cortisol rushing and, and stuff like that. Is, so well, I'll give you an example, like parenting. So I'll give you my. I'll come back to my son Tom. I hope he's not going to be listening to this. But um, <laughs> so you know, he doesn't keep a very tidy room, shall I say? Which is sort of not uh, you know unusual. So there's a couple of ways you can deal with that. One is threaten him, like your rooms really not tidy, your mum's upset about it, I keep asking you, you're not doing, if you don't tidy that and keep it tidy for a week, you, you know, you're not blah, blah, they've got a ski trip to Norway coming up, you're not going on that. Okay, so that that actually is quite easy for me because really I want something to be done and I know that I just need to really threaten them and it'll get done, probably will get done. But... That, to me, is lazy leadership and lazy parenting because actually what I'd prefer and I think is a more sustainable and actually much more powerful outcome is for me to have a conversation with them and say, "Do you tell me about how you feel being in your room when it's this messy. And I had that, that chat. And he doesn't really like it, to be honest. 
And but he just sort of puts things down, doesn't think about it. So I start talking about, you know, what what would be the best room that you know for you, like. And so he starts to create a bit of a vision around. Well, actually, I would prefer if it was like this. So then I try and coach him up a bit with a couple of skills around a couple of basic things he could do just to help himself around that. But then we get into a conversation around, you know, in some ways your bedroom is an example of standards, really. Like some people will just don't care. Whatever's convenient and easy, they'll just do that. But the other people have good standards. They're very clear they want to have high standards. So we start getting in these conversations, and all of a sudden, instead of threatening him, what you've done is reframed this about actually your room, and that is a reflection of the type of person you are. And you've got an opportunity really to have high standards and everything, and to be a bit organized, and to create a space that you, you really enjoy and take sort of responsibility for it. That takes more work, doesn't it? That takes more time. But ultimately, and I think that's a good analogy with the, you know, in the coaching work I do. So I, I think you end up with more sustainable, higher behaviors and someone with a, an elevated sense of identity if you bother to coach them and, or lead them in that way rather than just threatening them that there'll be a negative consequence if you don't do what I say. And because it's not based around threats, it's less adversarial and perhaps then you're developing that sense of belonging through uh, that conversational approach, yeah? But I agree, yeah, that's a good point. You say early in the book that, um, and you, you spoke about it at the beginning here, saying you belong here when you got that letter back. Uh, you know, the three most powerful words for Pacific Islanders to hear. I'm wondering if that goes well beyond Pacific Islanders as well. Absolutely. I mean, there's no doubt about it. Western societies are becoming more and more individualised. But you can see people, are the mental health, um, statistics are deteriorating and, 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 ex, and that's an accelerated way in the Western world as it is the rest of the world. So although it's becoming more hyped up and all, all, of, all of that individualism, the, the, the health cost of that is now people really understanding it's high. And people are trying all sorts of things and there's a, you know, as is, there's a industry around well-being and that's all fine. But I do still think something that's very neglected is just we need healthy relationships with other human beings to make us feel good, and we do need that. And it's hard. I mean, I was at a conference a couple of weeks ago. Team sports seem to be falling away. There seems to be you know, te less team sports in school. Well, that is, it can be a wonderful place to actually have a sense of connection and the sex and belonging and also learning skills as to how to um, navigate through pressure and difficult times with other people who you may disagree with and, and all those amazing skills to actually get on with people that team sports is, seems to be falling away um, families are you know more fractured structurally than they were in the past so that's a bit more complicated um, so there's a, a church attendance and things where, where people would take a lot of a, a real sense of communion and connection with each other well, that's f massively fallen away. So all these places um, have been replaced by like people staring at screens and sort of this idea that individualism and you know the idea that every individual should have a sense of their own individual purpose in life. You know, I, as I write in Belonging, I don't believe that at all. I've never had a sense of purpose for myself in my life. Um, I interviewed Jerome Kino in my book and I put it to him, you know, what's your purpose? Just to test this a little bit. You know, obviously coming from a Polynesian culture, and he said the same thing. He said that that question has no meaning to me. 
my purpose is whatever my family, my team, my organization, my tribe, my church need from me at a point in time. And I do honestly think human beings are healthier with that mindset rather than this is all about me. I've got to impress. I've got to be be better than other people. I've got to show my status. Yeah, I don't think that for 99.9% of human history, that's not the way we've woke up in the morning and thought about it. And I'm quite convinced it's not a healthy way to approach things. Which must, must get some pushback from some of the people you work with. Because I imagine in some of the environments you go into, there must be people who have got fairly set ways about their plans and the trajectory that they're on and, and you know, whatever whatever else goes into that. Talk to me a little bit about the, the, the conversations you get into when, you're, when you put that forward and you say, well, we've got, you know, however many thousands of years of, of human history where that wasn't the case and now it is. To what extent... <laughs> To what extent do they care what used to happen? Well, I've never had anyone pushing back on that at all. I mean, I've got good friends like Michael Gervais and a performance psychologist in the US who who they absolutely do go down the path of helping individuals have their individual purpose, their individual values, their individual vision and mission. Philosophy. Yeah, Yeah. and we've had some good robust discussions about that because it's just – and but you know we come out in the same place that for people to fulfill their full potential and have a healthy life they need strong relationships and connections with other people so he that he would not in, in any way disagree with that so i suppose where i end up getting to is with a lot of if people from africa asia polynesian backgrounds often you don't need to get into the individual personal benefits of what we're doing with them they're so tuned into the collectivist way of thinking you know that, that's a that's a generalization but I, I, that's from my experiences but in in australia in new zealand in the united kingdom in um the united states i think actually in my work you do have to carve out some space which is that this is who we are this is our vision of what we're trying to achieve and we are going to have a separate conversation that if we're successful and we execute the strategy and we achieve our goals, then this would be good for you. Like I don't need that conversation. No one who's ever led me has needed to take me aside and have that conversation about how if we collectively do well, it would be good for you. But I do see that, you know, more westernised, individualised environments, some people do want, that, expect that conversation. So that's fine. So that's what I'll do. So I don't know if you call that a compromise. Not really. Just probably just trying to be smart about it. So that there we're all okay, aren't we? Because people are clear that they will personally benefit and progress, which is very, very important to them. Um, in an individualistic way, that's fine. As long as we're all aligned and going in the same direction and fully committed to what we're achieving, that's fine. We're capable of holding two ideas at once, right? That's part of having a diverse team is that people not only come with different backgrounds and skin colours and religions, but different conceptions of the world. And their place in it. So there's no point just having, you know, Owen Eastwood turning up and having one version of it, which everyone's sort of got to land on. That's just not the case at all. Um, so we, we need to be agile and adaptable around how we get everybody pointed in the right direction, in the same direction. I wonder to what extent um, stress, pressure, expectation, anxiety, you know, you, you actually wrote this book during the lockdown. So this is a really interesting moment in time. And I'm just wondering to what extent 
those sort of external forces, like if we think about somebody coming into a, a work environment, as you say, maybe the induction processes are a bit skinny. Maybe we miss a trick with the opportunity to really make that person, will hold that person in a way where we really value what they've bought. And as you said a minute ago, we've chosen you. You know, there was a competitive field for this and we've chosen you. And it's because of these things that we see. And I wonder when that's missing, which often it is missing, um, that the stress and pressure and expectation both within the organisation but then the stress and pressure that people bring with them to an environment as well because they've all got complex personal lives as well, um, whether that gets in the way um, of people wanting to have a more collectivist approach and to realise that, you know, as you said earlier, they're interlocked arm in arm with not just the people uh, who've come before them but the people who are alongside them as well um, and make them want to pull individually. Well, absolutely, and that's actually what I quite enjoy about the work I do on the, in, on the sports side is you're actually seeing people under incredible levels of pressure and stress. It's just I find it just fascinating just to watch how that plays out and tried you know, I, I was a lawyer before I became a performance coach. I have no training around psychology or physiology or whatever. It's all basically stuff that I've just observed and picked up on and followed up on and talked to various people around. So, I, I, you know, what is very interesting when you see people who are performing in front of millions and millions and millions of people and people are desperate for them to win, like the England football team I've worked with for the last seven years, you know, that that, that, that is an extremely pressurised, high-scrutiny environment. So it's very interesting just to reflect on, so what are the things that make a difference for them to to perform well and, you know, and, and have been part of the journey of that team becoming more competitive over the last six years under Gareth Southgate? And it's exactly what we're talking about. They will arrive in a very high, high anxiety state. Obviously, <laughs> like it's a pretty scary thing to do in many ways, especially these tournaments. So you are very, very stressed when when you arrive. You're marinating in cortisol and adrenaline. So what are the things that can calm you, and then that way conserve your energy, and lock you into, you know, the work that needs to be done rather than the negative consequences of this goes badly. What are the things? And they are. They come back to it. Is that you make every individual feel that they belong there, that they're not some imposter, that they actually are valued and seen and heard, and they have a place here and they belong in that space. So you carve out time to do that. Then what's what's really important? Well, when any of us are going through a, quite a scary experience, you want to have that trust of the people around you. Now, when you don't trust the people around you, that is terrifying. And, you know, people talk about resilience as though it's some innate quality. I don't believe that. For me, I can be very, very resilient if I'm around people that I trust and I feel safe with. Mm. And we are pointed in the right direction, the same direction. I am not a resilient human being whatsoever if I'm surrounded by people who I don't trust and I don't feel they trust me. And I feel like if something goes wrong, they'll quickly look at me and go, you know what, maybe you, it's your fault, you go. So... What we so so it's just interesting because all these superstars and all the money—it's all red herrings. You look at it; actually, what matters is they have—they feel they belong there because it's been communicated to them. They something is done in order to build some trust and a sense of safety with the people around them. And the other thing, which is critical, is that the leader is signalling to them, hopefully quite explicitly, that hey, 
I care about you. I want you to know that. I want you to have an amazing experience here and I want you to really, really push your whole potential and I've got your back here. And doesn't mean to say some decisions won't, you know, go against you. You know, you might get not get picked for games you wanted to get picked for or whatever. So, you, you know, but, but we'll talk about it. I'll communicate honestly with you about those things. So, again, when someone is signaling to you that they care about you, that you belong here, and that there's something is done so the people around you, you feel like you can trust through this very challenging experience in your life, they still are the fundamentals for people to reduce the anxiety and to be successful. There is no other shortcut to it that I've seen. You tell a, a really good story in your book about Michael Owen, and for those who aren't familiar, English soccer player, played football. For, footballer. Thank you. Every there time you, you say soccer, <laughs> yeah, right. a football fairy dies. Yeah, that's good. Okay. Um, English footballer. Who did he play for, Dan? Michael Owen. Uh, Liverpool. He was an absolute golden child. Liverpool. Liverpool then, off, then went off to Real. Well, and that's exactly the point of, of your story in the book, isn't it? I mean, the idea, because what I'm interested there is that the same person, the same player, responding completely differently to an environment that has really emphasised a sense of belonging as to one that hasn't done the induction stuff very well, as Dan sort of suggested, here's your jersey, um, go for it, go and do your magic, go and earn your money, um, and not really brought that in. Where And so that was the case in the way you tell the story at Real Madrid, where he had a completely underwhelming experience in his time there. Um, so it's interesting that it's not just... The, the individual person that might be taking that with them. It's it's the combination and very strongly influenced by the environment, yeah? Oh, 100%. And it's interesting if uh, in sport sometimes what happens, and, and, and it could be in the NBA, NFL, NRL, whatever, any league, some superstar, some all-star comes to a new team. Everyone's expectations are through the roof and they just don't perform. And the narrative that often is thrown at them as they've just come for the money. They're selfish, they're lazy, they're not trying, all of these things. And when I've, in the occasions I've seen that up close, it's none of that. It's that they came from an environment where they really did have a sense of belonging and a, and a sense of trust and psychological safety um, and a sense of clarity about their role and how they fitted in with everyone around them. And they performed at an incredible world-class level in that environment. Then they moved to a completely different environment where the social dynamics different, maybe the style of play and the strategies different, and they struggle to fit in, which is, you know, obviously a big aspect of belonging is if you feel like you're fitting fitting in, and they just don't perform at the same level. And and you know, Michael Owen is an example. Went to Real Madrid, and and that was exactly how it played out with him. But it happens a lot, and it happens also, obviously, in the corporate space as well. People come with a great CV and interview very well, and then they, they they just underperform, underdeliver, and there's a lot of narratives thrown around. But I would start with it's just seeing, let's compare the different environments they've been in, and what are the dials we need to shift in the one now in order to get them back in that place where they performed at their best. And often, again, it's relational and around your sense of belonging and your stress management. In your book, you talk a lot, you, you speak, and you've mentioned him a couple of times already here, but you speak very highly of Gareth Southgate as, um, you know, as a leader, as the manager of the team. I'm interested in what happens when it's the, and, and you've spoken about you know, how it's the role of the leader to set those strong signals and, and, you know, and, and really nurture it. I'm curious as to what happens when it's the leader that's new. 
So, you know, without wanting to wish um, any coach losing their job, you know, there's two kinds of coaches, those that have been sacked and those that are waiting to be sacked. What happens, you know, when when Gareth moves on? Who's the custodians of that story, of the of that journey? And whose responsibility is it to bring whoever follows Gareth into the position of manager into the picture? Well, it's 100% the organisation's responsibility to do that. And it's definitely not for the new leader to come in and try and figure it all out for themselves. So as an example, um, I did some work with a rugby club in London, Harlequins Rugby Club, and I'm on their board now. But a couple of years ago when I was doing some work with them about reviewing where they're at, you know, there was a big vacuum around who who we are, what our story is, even though they're, I think, the fifth oldest rugby club in the world. The, the story wasn't captured. So, you know, we were bringing in these great shiny coaches and, and you know, go do your thing. But they didn't actually – it took them years to really understand who the hell we were, what our values were, how we wanted to play, what our fans expected. So we changed the process to one which Barcelona Football Club do, New Zealand – rugby union do with the All Blacks head coach and 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 increasingly I'm seeing some corporates are doing the same thing and that is when you actually are recruiting your coach or your manager or your chief executive the first thing you actually do is you give them a presentation around this is who we are this is our story and these are the things that we really believe in and these are the things we've learned along the way that really make a big difference for us you know and also, obviously, this is our vision of what we're trying to achieve. And then what we got, what we do is we get them to go away and absorb that. So we present to them, we put in a PDF, give it to them, and then we get them to come back a week later and present how they're going to work with us and lead in whatever role it is. And what they end up with is not just talking about themselves and what they did at the last team and all the rest of it they're talking about us and they've had to absorb all of that now that makes a massive massive difference for giving them a sense of belonging a sense of clarity around who we are and but making sure that everything that they're coming with is aligned to where we are going organizationally so i would challenge anyone listening to this if you're in a responsible position in organization if you had to do that tomorrow are you in a good position to brief, present to these candidates who you are and what you believe in and what your values are and what you're trying to achieve and get them to go away and, and re- present back in a, a week. And if you're not, you've got some work to do. That's how you really, really, I think, uh, helping your leader coming in, but making sure that we stay aligned to who we are and we don't go off on a complete tangent. Unless, of course, we've decided we want to have a transformation in which case, we still need to tell our story and we need still need to anchor it into who we are and our values, etc. But then you can invite them to paint a picture of what a transformation may look like. Imagine that hadn't happened. So let's say that somebody listened to this podcast a day late, you know, and mm-hmm. they've, they've brought someone in, they've appointed like, oh, geez, I wish we had done that. Um, but they haven't. But they still feel like they've got they've got they feel like for whatever reason they've got a good fit so if we just stay on the sporting team for for a moment is there a role do you think for the players to bring the manager into the picture the the players to kind of talk about the story or the or the direction or the vision or or can that get a little bit complicated if 
one leader has replaced another for for whatever reason? No, I that's a very good idea. In fact, I'm working with a, a, a very high profile team right now. I've just started in the last couple of months with a new leader, and the first thing we've done is is go around and have one on ones with the most senior players and asking them for their views on what their experience has been so far as part of this team and what they think are going to be the critical factors to move forward and achieve their ultimate goal. And, you know, if you've um, got enough humility as a leader to have those conversations, they don't appear weak at all. I can tell you, and the one I'm doing, there's nothing that feels weak about it. The players have actually grown a massive amount of respect for the new head coach for the fact that he's not only sort of throwing out a survey or having a team meeting, he's actually doing this in a very considered way, quality one-on-ones, um, you know, which I facilitate with them and getting some absolute gold in terms of insights and learnings because how would he know what the learnings are if he hasn't been in the environment? Well, some of these superstars in the team have been there their whole careers. So yes, and so that. But at the same time, it's it's great for capturing knowledge. But at the same time, it's also giving him a real sense of belonging and connection and getting to know these guys because he's having an intimate conversation with them. So yeah, I, I think that just makes sense to me. You know, without breaking confidences, like when you talk about something that's gold, what's in that that a coach? might not get if all they did was surveys or let's just do a team meeting or you know we'll do a we'll do a camp and we'll go away and we'll talk about it for an hour and then we'll go and train you know what what what's the bits of gold or the essence of it that they might be missing out on if they don't engage in more authentic one-to-one type stuff like you're doing it's a range between macro issues and micro issues so a macro issue could be um i've been here for five years and i've never had a conversation about who I am as a person or my personal life or my personal story with, with a coach. This is the third coach, and I've actually never had that. I've only ever had a coach have a conversation with me about the game and my role in it. So that's an, that's, that's someone who was reaching out and saying, I'd actually like to have um, a more authentic relationship with my coach who actually sees me as a human being, first of all. So that's a, that's, a, that's a bit of gold right there. That's sending a quite a useful information. Uh, sometimes uh, at a macro level, it'll be that there are certain patterns in our environment when we're under pressure. So if we lose three games in a row, you see patterns because these guys are smart and they've been there for a long time. And this is what happens. You know, the CEO invites the coach into the room and, and we can see the glass doors is shut and the whole tension goes up and the, and the coaches start, get, start getting risk averse. So the game plan starts to get more cautious and conservative and we don't like it as players. We just want to have one way of playing and be have the trust just to keep trying our best to play that style rather than moving around our conservatism of the way we play based on external pressure. So they're very, very useful insights. But there's you know little micro insights like a player will say, and this has come up absolutely, that there is a bit of technical detail which the coaches don't provide and actually does make a difference. Or we've got a weakness in some part of our performance staff where it's just not of a high enough standard, etc. So those things are a, bit, a little bit more micro, but incredibly useful as well. It's, it's interesting to pivot here from the idea of a very high-performing, um, mutually reliant team environment, like a, a, an, 
a national team or an English Premier League team or the All Blacks, whoever it is. What about in other environments? I mean, as you said, your background was as a lawyer and I'm guessing and open to challenge here, I'm guessing that in, in a legal environment, a lot of bright people working on, predominantly working on briefs individually um, and having an expectation both of themselves and from the firm that they'll do those at a very high standard and have success um, and are working on a more individual basis. Maybe if we transpose that then to a school environment where teachers say, well, this is my class, I'm just going to get on with them, uh, or this is, you know, whatever the equivalent is in different organisations, uh, and they don't see the same sense of need for teaminess. Um, you use the, the term, yeah, I did make that one up. Oh, um, I like teaminess. You use the, uh, the term in your book, and uh, feel free to correct my pronunciation, of rangatira. Mm -hmm. um, which you refer to as the weaving together of the team. And I'm wondering if some teams don't see the need for that weaving together of the team. Some individuals perhaps either, you know, in a corporate setting or in a school setting, for example, where they just go, I'm just here to do my thing. This is what I've been trained to do. These are my class or this is my client. Um, they don't see the same need for the development of a team. They don't see the same benefits um, of... of you know, creating that rangatira. Um, what are your thoughts on, on trying to help people who don't see that need to understand the value? Well, no, I actually think that's a, that's a completely fair point. Not all teams, in inverted commas, have the same need to be teamy, to use your expression. Yeah. You know, there are Thank lots you. of... It's getting traction, that word. <laughs> <laughs> there are, no, but there, there, are a lot of, there are a lot of situations and jobs where actually an individual just needs to do their bit well and then the next one needs to do their bit well and then that's how we will be successful. I mean, I mentioned in the book about the factory line. You know, some one person needs to do something with the tin and then the next one needs to put something around the tin and then the next one puts the beans in the tin and then the next one puts in the box. You don't need to be an amazing team. There's a, there's a, there's a production line. And everyone just has to do their own individual job. But I think what, what was one of the, some of the mistakes have been is that people have then thought that's how all teams work. You get a lot of people who, successful business people who come in and buy into sport, and they've actually been very successful without having to be very teamy because they've had this mm -hmm. sort of linear approach to producing something. And, and they don't quite understand that actually it's a very different kettle of fish when you've got a group of people who have to interact in incredibly complex ways under unbelievable pressure and scrutiny. That is not the same as being on a factory floor where we've all got one job to do and, you know, if someone's not doing it, then replace them with someone. But I, I think, you know, a law firm is an interesting one because actually, you know, a lot, 90% of the work and my, as a litigation lawyer was on your own. It's mm. true, but the 10% when you had to team up was critical to the success of a case. So you need to nail the teaming bit well. Um, and what I find, and I, you know, I work quite a bit with corporate leadership teams, and what I find is that sometimes they do come to those leadership settings with the mindset that we aren't a team. I'm here to represent my division, my department, and I'm basically an advocate for them. So I'm coming to leadership meetings, not so much trying to work as a team with the other leaders around me, but actually I'm trying to get as much resources and attention and, and positive influence as I can for my team. 
And so that, to me, is a recipe for dysfunctional leadership team. So one of the things with the leadership team is we have got to reset that no matter what mindset you've got elsewhere, when we come together, we actually need to work as a team. We need to put, be prepared to sacrifice what we're doing back at home potentially for the greater good. So I've seen some really beautiful leadership around that. I worked with Accenture last year in, in the U.S., so some awesome leadership around that, just explicit messaging to them that when you join this team, you take responsibility for the whole of the business, not just your area. And that means you may have to make decisions which are difficult for you to communicate back at home potentially if it's for the greater good. And you should don't accept being part of this team unless you're prepared to do it. And this is the way we will work together. You know, when I was a partner in a law firm, we didn't quite have that. And I remember there's quite a few important strategic decisions were made where individual leaders would opt in or opt out. They, they would decide for them and their teams whether they actually agreed with that and then they would either execute mm. it or ignore it. Again, you just these are just recipes for dysfunction. So, yeah, I think it is contextual as to how much you dial the stuff up or not. Um, mm. But certainly in those leadership teams, I think that's an undervalued part of it. It's not, an, it's not a gathering of leaders that need to really know how to work as a team and be prepared to make sacrifices in order to do that. I mean, the whole premise of that, though, is really challenging human nature, though, right? Because if I, I belong to that tribe, you know, they're my people. And then so the work that, you know, Accenture do, it's, it's, I imagine that it, they've got to be explicit and, like, yeah. Un- uncommonly consistent. How do they set up that norm? Because I, I just think that, you know, there's this, um, we, we were just exploring this concept just a couple of weeks ago, this idea of the first team mindset where, you know, if I'm on two teams in the way that you are, I lead one team and then I'm a part of another team. Human nature is that I'm going to be probably more loyal to the people I spend more time with. Mm. Um, so I think that's a, an interesting challenge to, to set up. And I'm, yeah, I'm just really fascinated about how it's done successfully because I've seen it done terribly Hmm. countless times (laughs) well you're right you're right about human nature you know it's called homophily which is that we are attracted to small very similar groups of people aka cliques so the the natural i don't get upset about cliques they're very natural they can be damaging and sometimes we have to intervene but that's natural i'm of course when i go into a new environment i'm going to probably um end up connecting initially with people who feel similar to me in some way or another. We share something. So it's just complete human nature, not a problem at all. So, you, you know, smart leaders when it comes to a leadership team, you've got to be aware of that and not just assume that everything will go well because you're telling people to do something. Um, you've got to understand that you actually have to create a, a, their own sense of this being a team, as you say, maybe the first team, and that there are certain rules of engagement to be part of the team and be explicit and direct about it and make sure sh- people accountable to it but not just um that you know we have a vision of of what we're trying to achieve as this team so we have a chapter of the story that this team needs to write so you just got to have a counter narrative an alternative storytelling because if you create a vacuum around that and we just meet and talk about so-called big issues then of course their loyalty and their decisions and behaviors are going to favor their clique that's how we operate Dan and I have really been fascinated by the idea of the metaphor that you use of the the metaphorical sun rising in the metaphorical east, and you know, on the 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 ancestors, both personal and 
more in the sense of humanity. Uh, them having their moment in the sun and the legacy they've left behind is the moment that we're having in the sun now, um, which, as you as you touched on earlier, isn't always, you know, we're not always inheriting a good thing. Sometimes we're inheriting something that's fundamentally challenging and choosing to change that narrative as part of our opportunity and obligation while the sun's shining on us. But I'm wondering also about the sort of moral and ethical obligations and opportunities that we have on a much broader scale than just our own personal story in relation to this unbreakable chain because i think the metaphor of you know as you know you you tell and and um, very clearly i can see what you're talking about here of an unbreakable chain but we're actually all arm in arm with each other my father before me his father on his right my son beneath me and and his you know, unborn children and grandchildren well into the future. And whether we have sort of the obligations well beyond just the team of people we're working with, which is what we've been focusing on, but a bigger picture towards sort of humanity and how far that that extends. Well, there's a, there's a few bits in there. I mean, I actually think climate change is a great example of um, not living this way of seeing the world. Okay, because the story up to this point is one where there is glory in terms of what humans have achieved, but there's also shame in terms of the cost of that, and the climate is a, is, is a good example in a lot of our fellow species on the planet, and, and pain as well. So it's like a family. All of these things are comparable. So our story up to this point is that we've done some amazing things as a species, but we've also done some real damage. So the sun is now shining on us, and it has been for a couple of generations around climate change. So in the way I was brought up, we have to meet the moment. So it's not about replicating what was fantastic 100 years ago in the way that we created and produced things. It's like, what's the moment asking of us? And it's very clear that the climate is being affected by our behaviour and we need to address it. But that's not what's happened, is it? Is that the leaders over the last few generations just keep passing it on. They keep basically continuing, you know, on a macro level, a lot of the behaviours and, and are waiting for the people who will follow them to have to make the hard decisions and make the sacrifices. So that is... When, you know, I think that's quite a useful way to think about Whakapapa if you're looking at it from a real big point of view, is it, what if we had a different approach to doing this? And what if we actually just spiritually recognise that actually, no, it's not good enough, it's not acceptable to pass this on for our children and grandchildren to deal with and manage, but it'll be too late. And we know that. <laughs> so what we need to step up now. So, I th yeah, that, that still works for me if we're going to look at it at that big level. One of the things I do actually, just also on your question, is when I do visioning with a team, the way we often will do it is use concentric circles. <clears throat> so we have our purpose in the middle of about why we're here and, and then what goes with that is if we were to live our purpose, what would that be like? So that's the whole challenge around visioning. So we start with a circle in the middle, which is us. So if we were really, really successful and delivered on our purpose, what would that be like for us? 
So it comes a little bit back to individualistic, collectivist, but what it would be like for us. And it, and it um, you know, there's very interesting conversations happen there. But then we push it out to another concentric circle outside that is that if we were successful, how would it benefit other people in our organisation or other stakeholders? And we spend we spend a day on this, so we, we we you know it's not superficial. So the you know our partners, our sponsors, people like that. How if we, obviously our employees and the wider staff, if we are successful, how would it benefit them? How would their lives be better if we are successful? And then we go out to another concentric circle, which is our communities that we live in. If we're successful, if we do really really well. How will it benefit? And this can be a business, can be can be anything, it could be a church, it could be a sports team. How would it benefit the community? And then we push it out a bit further. Is that you know, it could be if it's a sports team, how would it potentially impact the whole of the sport? If it's a business, how would it potentially impact the economy? And then we go out to another one, which is the environment. So if we do what we're doing really, really well and successful how will that affect the environment we live in, the physical environment? And so in some ways that's a way of creating a very human-driven purpose is to acknowledge that you want to be successful and be clear why, but then be very visual around how this will benefit all those different circles, concentric circles of people. And I think once you've got that and you've articulated that, it creates a hell of a lot of energy and power in a team. Versus some a group of people are just trying to do something because it would be good and from a personal point of view. It sounds like a very manageable, uh, but also very compelling argument. Once you've seen that, you know we're watching you sort of more or less draw it on the table <laughs> in front of you. Once you've actually seen that, mm. the ripple effect. The ripple, yeah, yeah. Well, literally, and then you know how it, it becomes quite a compelling thing. I'm finding it hard to ignore what you've just said. Mm. You know, it's starting at the personal and then moving right out into the environment. Uh, and as you suggest, it, it doesn't matter what the organisation is. It could be as simple as a church. Yeah. Um, yeah. Or it could be the All Blacks. Mm, exactly. With the, I mean, you, we talk, if we say climate change is like the, the starting point and then zoom right into a, um, a smaller, you know, a, a more micro um, environment like a, a business or a school or a team. You know, what's been has been, you know, we've, we've, as you say, there's been, again, holding two ideas, you know, with, there's been obviously some upside, but there's been some terrible downside and, and, and shame and, and all that. I'm curious about, as you alluded to, for the past two decades, we've had leaders who have gone, uh, nah, too hard. <laughs> that's, yeah. uh, that's too hard for me. And uh, I think that's something that the next government should be really mindful of, right? Yeah. Three more years. Three more years. Yeah, in Australia, three more yeah. years. In, in, but um, but um, if we think about when a leader, and again, I'm I'm actually sort of moving away from that the the, the politician thing because I'm I'm not putting much faith in politicians. But I'll put I'll tell you who I will put faith in. I'll put faith in school principals. I'll put faith in business owners, and I'll put faith in sports coaches. Right, and let's say that they come in and they are driven to to make changes. Right. They want to make changes for whatever reason, but they also want to be, well, actually up until this point, they might not even be aware of what the origin, the us story is. I'm curious how we balance the tension between people who are actually have lived this origin story. It, it defines them. It defines who they are. 
and then somebody new comes in. So this could be with, I don't know, like a second generation business, for example. Somebody new comes in and says, hey, dad <laughs> or mm. granddad, you know, we we need to move with the times here. We need to change. And And I'm actually working with a school where this is quite prominent. They've got some staff there. They describe the school as it is a special, special place. They've been there teaching for 30 years. And when new things come in, they don't see it as, oh, this is new. They see it as, oh, we're old. You know, we're 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 no longer I'll I'll use the words that are used in the in, in our session. We're no longer valid. And I was really it was a it was it was a, a beautiful moment in the in the session as it happens because all of a sudden, because there's there's new younger leaders in the in this group, but for that to be put out on the table, it changes the it changes everything when people you start, oh wow you see it like that wow mm-hmm. um, I'm interested in what leaders particularly who who have been appointed with a change agenda it's your job come in here we need to shake things up we need to move with the times we need to do this do that how do they navigate that space where people have lived this story it is them and how do they tread that with respect and how do they tread that as again holding the other idea of going but we need to move on and i, I appreciate you know because i'm going to this this is what the time needs you know the sun's shining on us right now we need to do what the, this time requires how do we navigate that space as respectfully and as and as effectively as possible well you know i'm, I'm pretty busy on my coaching but <clears throat> excuse me something i like to do you know once or twice a month is do workshops with with leadership groups, uh, particularly in business. Um, I really get a lot of energy from doing that. And so I'm going to answer your question. There's a workshop that I, you know, would do on a probably monthly basis with different organizations where probably lasts for about three hours. And the first hour we actually spend um, quite a, and maybe <laughs> the individualized societal but we, we we talk about but we try and actually anchor people in who they are as an individual in the first part of it because it actually is a lot easier to belong in a group if you have a clear sense of your own identity if you don't really know who you are and you don't know what anchors you and what you stand for actually you may feel you've probably lost everywhere so we actually do and it's a there's a maori um, ritual pepiha which is when you articulate your the places that you belong and the people you belong with so what we actually do is have an exercise around that where everybody, and, you know, in small groups, we break them into small groups. It's been done online beautifully with 800 people where they go into chat rooms of three. So they intimately will explain to each other and show images on their phone of that these are places I belong to and these are the people I belong with. So that creates an anchoring of who I am that we can then move into the team. The second part of what I do, which I'll elaborate on, is is using whakapapa to have an inquiry with each other of this is our story to this point. What are the things that we want to take with us? What are the things that we should leave behind? And what are the things that have value but they need some mending? That's how I frame it. And then the final part, and so we spend an hour on that, and then the final hour is around, you know, at the more micro level, what are the things in the day-to-day environment, performance environment, make a big difference that we can do every single day, not once a year or when people are inducted. So we play around with that. 
and then people are able to identify what they do or don't do in their environments and what other ideas there are. So that paints a picture of to act upon. But coming back to the second part of it, I think that, that in my experience, are incredibly healthy discussions. So rather than looking for a transformation agenda or having just a leader come in and say, "Okay, I've done, I've been here for a hundred days, and this is how we're going to completely revolutionise," this is people having, you know, and I've mentioned, I, you know, it can be small leadership groups. So I was eight hundred people a couple of weeks ago on that call. Everyone having a voice and saying, "These are the things we want to take with us." Um, and they'll be traits slash values. They'll be um, the type of atmosphere, the type of tone, the type of these sorts of things, um, you know, some of the heritage, the stories that actually show that we can be successful and do things. So all that. Why do we want to leave behind? Um, sometimes they're a mindset, which can be a bit of a victim mindset or a bit of a, you know, we're Johnny-come-lately's mindset. Sometimes it's more dramatic than that, is that we have a bullying culture and a cultural environment. We have we have a misogynistic environment. Those things come out. So let's just friggin' this is the time we can acknowledge it, put it down on the table, and can we make a commitment together? This does not go with us any further. And then one of the things that we, we can see value in, but we need mending. So we used to be really, really innovative. We used to come with these crazy ideas. We were so and quick to get them into market. And actually now we've become very sluggish, very bureaucratic. And now it takes 10 levels of permission to get anything done. So why bother? We're making enough money out of the things we've, we did 10 years ago. So we actually need to take with us this real ability to be creative, but we have to mend it because all the bureaucracy around it's killed it. So these are the type of things that typically come. And now there, if a leader is open, listening, engaged in this, Again, I'll use that word, there's some absolute gold for them to make sure that as we move forward, we're all doing it together. We've all had a voice in this, you know, and, and then we've got this collective buy-in as to what that looks like. I think um, what you've given people there is a wonderful start point. They can clearly think, you know, of how they could take that just to their, you know, to take that to their, their team and sit around the table. I mean, one of the things we know happens a lot as a result of these podcasts is we have leaders who listen to the podcast, share it with their team, and then go and do... They, they ask us for some kind of reflection that they can do. I think just do what Owen's just um, mm. described there with the team. Because what we often hear as well is that we just don't... Um, you know, if we, if we do something like that in an environment... And people find that a very powerful experience. And as you say, it works online, but it also works incredibly well face-to-face. And people say, we just never take the time to sit and talk like this. Mm. We're always head down, Mm. bum up and doing the work and going in circles with the work a lot of the time. Uh, And we just don't get to do that. That Pipihar idea, I mean, it actually, I've got to show you, seeing as you're on the video here as well, I've got a copy of your book here, but... (laughs) In your in the copy I've got of your book is a photo mm, of uh, my grandmother mm. and my father. Mm, beautiful. Um, yeah, it's it's a gorgeous shot, it and is. and it's interesting. I'll, I'll, you know, I probably should talk about it off air, but I'll talk about it with you here. <laughs> um, your book has had a big influence on me, as as you know, Dan's. We, we both talk about it a lot, but I really rave about it. But um, in the sense that you know. Um, I've, I have the incredible privilege of my father still being alive and he's 84 and 
we are going to his heritage, which is Ireland, together uh, in a few weeks. And he's never been, uh, but his parents migrated from Ireland to Australia in 1925. And up until I read your book, I knew it was going to be a special thing because my dad's never flown before, he's never been overseas and has a great fear of it. Um, but he's decided that this is the time and that uh, he and I can go together. And since reading your book, I've realised that the incredible depth of opportunity that I have, and I read with sadness as, as you tell the story of your dad dying when you were very young and just saying, I've got this opportunity with my father now, but it's, it's so multi-layered, this opportunity, for us to touch the ground mm. in Ireland and to be there together, to look back at that unbreakable chain and to, to feel and to see it's really grounded me in my understanding of who I am mm. um, and who my mm. dad is and now who my sons are and, and really given a sense of the opportunity. Um, you know, when I'm talking about your work to other people, I talk about opportunity and obligation of having our moment in the sun. Yeah. It's, you know, on the really positive side, there's incredible opportunities that come with... Um, the potency that we have of having the sunshine on us and what we can do with that. But there's also, there's a heavy, heavier side of this obligation. We must do something with what we've got with our opportunity. And so I just wanted to share with you, that's how I'm reading your work at the moment. No, it's beautiful. And so thank you. No, thank you. And, you know, you recall, I, I mentioned how I took my mother, who's 86 now, we both went to Ireland together and we, we had not contacted the... Our, our relations, because we wouldn't know how to, we just went to the village that we knew that our ancestor came from in the 1860s, asked in the village who the hell the dailies were, and they pointed up a hill, <clears throat> which we had to walk up, knocked on the door, and this very old man answers the door, and we just say, we're the descendant of Patrick Daly who came to New Zealand in 1864. And he said, ah, Patrick, and he just sat us down and told the story of the three brothers. and. Mm -hmm. They knew it, they just passed it down on and on. But that was the first time since then that, that it would actually reconnect it. I think when you do that, <clears throat> um, it gives you a sense of confidence, I think, if you have a strong sense of your identity. And I don't think everybody should be obsessed with the past. Some people actually aren't, and they that's fine. I think one of the beautiful things we can do as people is to curate our own identity story, and no one can tell us what it is. And <clears throat> my children have got lots of different interesting stories and things that they, but they will knit it all together in their own way. And I love that. And, I, and one thing that, you know, I mentioned at the start of this conversation, those horrendous mental health statistics coming through on a global level. But there's little schools in New Zealand who for the 12 year olds, the first three months of their year at school, they spend allowing each of them with different stimulus to curate their own story of who they are. I, I just think that is an absolute gift to give to a, and I, that happened to me as a twelve-year-old. <clears throat> I think it's an absolute gift to give to anybody at any part of your life, a strong sense of this is who I am, and these are the values that are shorthand for it. Well, I think you can gather from from the conversation that you know the work has had an impact for us both on a professional, but certainly you know on a personal level as well. And we thank you for for sharing that. One of the things we're asking our guests to wrap up each um, each of our interviews is so we read your book and it's inspired us. 
we're curious to hear what's one or two books which whether it's a recency bias thing like the last thing you read which has been inspiring or maybe something that's just been a constant kind of you know a, a foundational reading of, of yours just so we can sort of it's you know again kind of like that unbreakable chain thing right you know we're all standing on the shoulders of giants so it's yeah i'm just curious to hear what what's inspired you in your reading world i i actually read fiction as much as i can i think i get a, a richer sense of the complexity of relationships and personalities through that than non-fiction so i, I read a lot of fiction um but the book that's had the most impact on me professionally is definitely Sacred Hoops by Phil Jackson. So Phil Jackson was a coach of the Chicago Bulls um, with Michael Jordan. They won three NBA titles in the early 1990s. Jordan went away for two years after his father was murdered, played baseball, and then came back, and then they won another three. And the it's a beautiful, quite a simply written book, hopefully like Belonging is. Um, it's not particularly long, but the reason it means a lot to me is, first of all, Phil Jackson was the first time I ever read anywhere where he openly expressed spiritual ideas as the backbone of the team culture that he built. So for him, he used Sioux Nation, um, indigenous North American ideas explicitly with the Bulls and having people like Jordan, who aren't part of that culture, buy into it completely. So... I'd always had these ideas of whakapapa and mana and other Polynesian ideas in my background. I was never too sure how explicit I should be about it. So that he gave me complete permission to bring these into any environment you wish. So that, that was amazing because if I hadn't have had that, a lot of other sort of books are very professional, management speakish, and that, which is not my style. So I'm grateful to him for that. The other part of it as well is that he wrote that book in between the two three-peats. This isn't an old man or a retired coach reflecting nostalgically. This is someone in the moment who was writing about what we have just done, literally. Mm. So there's some beautiful little details there that could easily have been forgotten later. So for me, I, I, you know, I don't... I like The Culture Code by Dan Coyle. I think it's a, that's, a, that's a good culture book. But Sacred Hoops for me... 100% is the most influential book, which has helped me coach. Cool. Shit, that's just because he hasn't read your book yet, Dan. Well, well. That'll change. <laughs> That'll change. Well, we'll put some links in the show notes to both those books, as well as links to how people can find out more about you. So, Owen, when people are finished listening to this and they're going, okay, definitely need to find more out about the book and and what owen does where's the best place to find you online it's not it's not as easy as you'd think i i actually just busy and i don't i actually don't engage much at all um i'll go on linkedin is the one place is where i i'll probably yeah. check it every few days and and occasionally i'll put a posting on it but um, I think that's where I stalked you. I think I stalked you. Through <laughs> well, well, you're smart. That's <laughs> a place to go. But I, yeah, I'm not. Yeah, I, I probably need to slow down a little bit and reflect because people are extremely kind. I mean, the book has come out now two years ago and I still get, you know, multiple daily messages from people who have read it. It's in, and all around the world, it's been published in the US last year. And, you know, some big teams there have reached out and just quite incredible how they've felt the ideas resonate. So I probably need to be, I should be a bit smarter around um, keeping the conversation going with people, but 
at the moment, it's really just through the book or on LinkedIn. Well, we'll make sure we've got links to the book and LinkedIn um, in the show notes. So, yeah, Perko, any final thoughts there, mate? Uh, no, I just think how um, typically uh, Kiwi you're being with being so low-key about this and uh, <laughs> Dan's offering the opportunity to send business running your way left, right and centre. You go, no, actually, I'm just going to keep it a bit low-key for now. <laughs> Have a snooze. Uh, <laughs> I like, like uh, really lovely to talk to you. Well, I like, if I had a, I'm a one-man band. If I had any shareholders, they'd be absolutely yeah. kicking my butt. I know that. But I like <laughs> to keep my life pretty simple and relaxed. So. Yeah, no, wonderful yeah. to chat with yeah. you. I mean, that to be honest, really important and and unique questions that you've put to me. Uh, hopefully, I've done them, done them justice. Well, we've we we've, we've been looking forward to this conversation mm. for, for well as long as we've had it in the in the calendar, and uh, yeah, it, it's uh, certainly lived up to everything we were hoping for. So, thank you so much yeah. for your time. I mean, we really yeah, do appreciate it. Yeah, well, you should know. I actually had. Uh, tickets and uh, backstage pass to see Billy Bragg in Sydney tonight and I've passed oh on those goodness. to be with you instead oh so uh, thank you for not thank you for not disappointing <laughs> oh I feel a bit guilty now a bit of shame in my story you've, you've introduced <laughs> none whatsoever <laughs> this is definitely my preference he's a bit moany old Billy yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great thank you well Perco well, 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 Daniel. That uh, that was a chat. Yep, that was a good chat. Yeah, fair to say it lived up to what we were hoping for, right? Mm. Really cool. Um, as we mentioned, um, all the links to the books that um, Owen mentioned there, the Culture Code, Sacred Hoops, as well as obviously the links to Get Belonging and uh, the links to Owen's LinkedIn profile. That's you'll find all of that in the show notes. So if you found any of that interesting. You know, as we always do, we encourage you to, to share that far and wide. Listen to it as a team. Talk about it. See what it can mean for you. Because in the work we're doing with people, the ones that are really, to use that phrase, leaning into it, yeah. it's a game changer. It really is a game. And I'm talking about that, whether it's the, an NRL team, a school, a, a business. People who are leaning into this, it's changing things. And, um, yeah, I, I'd highly, highly recommend you checking that out. So, of course, as we always say, if you found that conversation worthwhile, there's a fair chance. What, Perko? Someone else. Someone else will. That's it. Send it far and wide. That's it. Get like it out us. there. What do we say? Like us. Like us. Subscribers. Subscribe. Comment on the podcast. Um, and, yeah, just basically any small action like that, the like, the subscribe, the comment, it's a small action from you, but it does really crazy things to the algorithms and, and it just sends this podcast out there into the ether. And I can't tell you how many people are coming to us now, new clients, as a result of the podcast. The podcast. Yeah. So for those of you that have been listening, you know, since day one, you know, we're now up to episode 79. It's been a journey, I think three years at least you know you, we really really do appreciate every one of you uh, that listens and and but you know we appreciate those that leave a message or comment or subscribe you know we appreciate you just a little bit more <laughs> <laughs> so you're, you're the ones who get the christmas cards <laughs> so yeah so um if you're interested in um the stuff we do if you're interested in leaving us a question for an upcoming q a episode or if maybe you've read a cool book and you think oh, it'd be great to hear from that author then if you head over to habitsofleadership.com and click on the podcast page you can leave us a message and you can learn more about us but until our next episode 
Thanks, Perko. Thanks very much, Dan. Enjoy your trip to Ireland because I think this will be the last time that um, our people will be hearing from you until oh, you've, you've gone. So I hope you have a great time with your dad. I might come back with a lilt after that. A little Irish lilt. Okay, I, hope, I hope you do. <laughs> until next time, folks. Take care. Take it easy.